Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Very happy to be joined today by Gromer Jeffers Jr., longtime political writer for the Dallas Morning News and a longtime friend of the work that we do here at the Texas Politics Project. Gromer, thanks for being here. Hey, man, it is, I'm, I'm excited about this, and you're right. I'm a fan. I'm a fan <laughs> of the work of, of what you all do at the Texas uh, Politics Project. So. Well, that's that's really kind. I, I was going to be concerned. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even have gone as far as fans, so I really appreciate that. So, you know, we invited Gromer today in, in part because I wanted to check in on, on your take, Gromer, on the state of the primary campaigns that are underway now in Texas as we get closer to the March 1st primary elections. Um, you know, I thought we'd start near the top of the ballot, though not exactly, though not literally at the top, by talking about the attorney general contest and the Republican Party. The incumbent right. Republican, Ken Paxton, is seeking election to a third term. He's facing a crowded field, which early on I, I drew a lot of interest in this race. But, you know, as this shape as this race has shaped up, there were a lot of people who expect this to be one of the most competitive primary races this cycle. That may still be true, but you had a really interesting column that got my attention and, and the attention of a lot of other folks who kind of flagged it for me um, that suggested that this race has not taken off the way we expected. So let's start. I'm curious, what in your reporting makes you think that you know, this race isn't shaping up as quite as competitively as we thought. Well, just first of all, if you talk to the activists, some of the local party leaders, uh, the folks on the ground, uh, they say that they just they just don't feel not just their energy, but that the the voters are engaged right now. Uh, and, and not just in that race, but in in politics in general. And I don't know if that's because of election fatigue, where we're coming out of the holiday season, lingering effects of the pandemic. But you have that. You have a, a general sort of we're worried about politics later attitude with a lot of a lot of the voters. And given that this race was supposed to be the marquee race, because you had a seemingly wounded incumbent uh, going against uh, a statewide office holder and, you know, the heir to the uh, Bush dynasty and George P. Bush and a very credible uh, former Supreme Court justice who's run statewide before and Eva Guzman and now Louis Gomer, the congressman. Uh, you just don't feel that energy and that enthusiasm about that race yet and you mentioned yet and i and i preface that it could heat up here in the last month or so but certainly in the last few weeks but certainly you don't feel it yet and my sense of it is 
you you might have to wait till you get down to two people to get that really to get the energy to get the the excitement the anticipation of of what will happen that you'll get normally for a race of this magnitude but it, people are just not feeling it yet at least that's what I'm told from conversations with activist party leaders and folks on the ground. Well, you know, you said, you know, this race getting down to two people. I think it's, you know, the question about this race and and I think the the lingering assumption about the field looking in the way that you described it, where you have a candidate with at least name recognition in George P. Bush and, you know, a a very well-known, at least, you know, an experienced statewide candidate, if somebody who's run, you know, pretty far down on the statewide ballot, that is Ava Guzman. I don't want to sell her short. I mean, you know, one, you know, she's gotten a lot of votes statewide uh, in, in past elections. And yet, you know, this hasn't really taken off yet. I mean, there were, you, you did some interest. You got some interesting feedback in that piece about whether we should assume there's going to be a runoff. I mean, is you know, the assumption there, as you say, this race will heat up when we get to two people, is that there'll be a runoff. When we polled on that race, and again, I do the the horse race polling kind of under semi under protest as far away right. as we did it <laughs> in October. You know, we had Paxton, I think, at 48 or 49 percent right on the bubble. Right. Um you know, I think you had, if I remember correctly in the article, correct me, you had Bill Miller, well-known consultant and, and general guru, I think, in Austin, saying that he thought there was a shot that this wouldn't reach a runoff. What? What's, it sounds to me like you kind of assume there will be a runoff. And I'd assume is too strong, too strong a word, but that that's still the odds-on bet. I think so. I uh, Just what you just laid out, uh, you know, George P. Bush, while the base of the conservative party uh, may be controlled by the, the hard right in a sense, there's still some uh, uh, Republicans out there that are supportive of George P. Bush. I don't think it'll be a wipeout. He'll get some votes. And you mentioned uh, Justice Guzman as well. She's spending a lot of money. Ultimately, she'll get to the point where she's running a credible campaign. It's very hard in that type of field uh, if you're Paxton with his legal problems. They're still there. There are some concerns about it. Uh, It may not be the majority of voters, but there are concerns. I think that's enough to probably push this into a runoff. Would I be surprised if if he won outright? Just mildly, I think there's a possibility. Yeah. I think Bill Miller and and then the uh, Matthew Langston was the other consultant I I quoted in that article. They both think there's a possibility that he could win without a runoff. But I think just the mechanics of it to me suggest that uh, you know he'll get in the 40s, pot potentially, but there still be a runoff. Right. And you, you mentioned him and then I left him out. But, and, you know, I mean, and I think the real a real factor here is, is Louis Gomer. you know, the right. You know, it's not easy to get to the right of Ken Paxton <laughs> in terms of positioning in these races. I, you know, I mean, you know, that's funny to us, but it's also, you know, I mean, I I could make that argument pretty objectively, I think. And we right. did see a movement, uh, uh, you know, two people that, you know, you know, were sort of percolating in this race or, you know, Gomert, who who ultimately got in. And then we saw Matt Krause, you know, a very conservative state legislator, sort of make a feint toward this. And then once Gomert got in, he got out. 
um, or, you know, that's what it sort of looks like. And, and the Louis Gohmert factor looms pretty large here because, if you know, if you look at our data, you know, Paxton is, for all his troubles, and, you know, I have a, a laundry list of, you know, the, the recent stories and the things that are pending on uh, around the Ken Paxton presidency. Right. Um, he's got a pretty secure position among what we would think of as the likely Republican primary electorate, which is more attentive, much, you know, very conservative um, and very loyal to Ken Paxton. If there's anybody that, you know, might shave some of the core of his support off, it probably is more likely to be from the right than from the the center right, I think. Right. I agree. And and Louis Gomer talks or speaks to the portion of the Republican Party that you just described, the Paxson supporters, basically. He can speak to those voters with credibility. Uh because you're right, it's hard to get to the right of Ken Paxson, but it's very, very hard to get to the right of Louis Gomer. And so if he has a gripe with Paxton, uh, the, the most conservative voters of the party are probably more likely to listen to, to, to Gomer and even know Gomer more so uh, than Eva Guzman and especially George P. Bush. So... If if Gomer can have can find the resources to amplify his his name to get more familiar with with most voters in Texas, especially voters outside of Tyler and and that extreme conservative base that he appeals to, then yeah, he can be a factor because he can talk to those voters with credibility. They'll listen to him. Is it, this is they'll be like, hey, this is good old Louis. Oh, he's raising a concern. Oh, maybe we should really look at this. I think that would that could be the attitude there. Uh, if it's coming from George P. Bush about, uh, hey, if we have a non- if Paxton is the nominee, the Democrat will win. Well, you know, most conservative, ultra conservative Republicans w- won't really hear that message from a, from a George P. or or even Justice Guzman. But if Gomer is delivering it, they're like, really okay. Well, let's consider this. So I that's that would be the concern that Paxson would have with the Gomer candidacy. But the, again, the question is, can he does he have the resources to make himself more of a factor? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this cuts to the heart of what's really difficult about these primary campaigns. I mean, you're only you know, we're talking in a, in a statewide race about probably not more than about. 1.6 million Republican voters. Right. So you're not talking about having to sway a lot of people. And, you know, and I think as we compare the two, one of the things that I think is interesting about this, if you really want to just reduce the heck out of it, is that Bush and Guzman have to make two points or have to make two arguments. You know, one, you know, for a, to, a, to a Republican primary electorate, the first argument is, you know, I am conservative enough. And, you know, I think that's particularly difficult for 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 George P. Bush, given the Bush brand in the state. Right. And then, you know, but and then the second argument is, you know, the the the, the fact that, that Paxton is essentially damaged goods because of his his problems, his his ethical problems and all some of the other things hovering out there. 
you know, Louis Gohmert only has to make one of those arguments. And I think, you know, it might be easy to underestimate, you know, we, we think about these primary, these, these statewide primary races in very conventional terms about having to get your name out and having to achieve statewide name recognition. This is a much more targeted audience. And Louis Gohmert is already pretty well established among a big part of that primary audience. He may not be on the three network newscasts every night, but he is a regular fixture in conservative media. And that is, I, I suspect that they are banking on that being their secret weapon, that they don't need as much money. That, the, and you raise a good point. He may not be on the, the on the local networks or the, the local news or the networks, but he's on Fox or whatever conservative outlet you choose. He's even uh, sat in and done national radio programs when when these hosts go on vacation, uh, which don't underestimate that. I mean, you know, sitting in for Hannity or whatever, you know, the host. He's done that. And so his name could be more familiar with the most conservative voters than, than we imagine. And if that's the case, yeah, he doesn't need as much money. He doesn't really have to do a lot considering the smaller universe of primary voters. Uh, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll just have to see. I call him, he's the wild card. I, I totally agree with that. He is the wild card in a race. And I think if Paxson, he, he won't admit this, but I think if he's concerned about anybody at this point, it's not only Gomer, but it's getting into a one-on-one race with Gomer. Because if Gomer can manage to make the runoff, oh, wow. That, yeah. What does that race look like? Yeah, really fundamental. It changes the fundamentals. Exactly. Because he, you can run against George P. Bush if you're, if you're Paxson, right? He's right. not, you, you, you can know, see that campaign from, you know, right. 100 miles exactly. away. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, let, let's look at some of these other races in your region since we're, we're lucky to have you here and, and really close to the ground in North Texas. Uh, you had a column this morning in the Dallas Morning News on the House District 114 race in the, in the State House of Representatives. And that's the seat that's been retired, that's been vacated by the retiring John Turner. Right. Uh, a Democrat, but a, a district that's also been redrawn. Um, right. Tell us, tell us about that race because there's interesting things going on there. Most recently, uh, the 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 surprise entrance of a sort of tried and true older Democrat and and experienced politician, but kind of a surprise entrance by the the 74 year old John Bryant. Yes, yes, and um, for those who who I, I remember when I when I got to Texas. I, one of my first races was the 2002 Senate race between Ron Kirk, the former Dallas mayor, and John Cornyn. Uh, the, the, uh, at that time, he was a, a attorney general, but of course, Cornyn won that race. In the primary was a guy named, against Ron Kirk, was a guy named Victor Morales. And Victor Morales was is responsible for one of the great upsets in Texas political history. He drove a white pickup in 1996 around uh, the state of Texas and beat John Bryant, a former congressman uh, from Dallas, in the uh, Democratic primary for Senate. 
that was my first sort of encounter with with the legend of Bryant. But anyway, Bryant, before becoming a congressman, was a state rep and a distinguished state rep, and and by most accounts did a good job. He's now trying to make a comeback be, for for a couple of reasons. One, he thinks that the legislature, the Texas legislature, is in bad need of an experienced Democrat, a leader, someone who knows how to fight against Republicans, frame arguments. He, he's critical of, of how Democrats are handling their business uh, in the legislature, and he wants to come out of, what, of, of political retirement and make a difference. The interesting thing about that is that he's running against four other folks under 40. And this comes at a time when Democrats, as you know, Jim, they're trying to get fresher, younger. They're trying to get more people involved in the process. They're trying to identify more leaders. And so they have this diverse crop of, of, of candidates running, uh, all you know, rising stars in, in their own rights, at least that's how they, they are described. And the potential there is for Brian the 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 veteran the 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 political from another era from last in office in the 90s to sort of at least upset the development of finding new and fresh talent and and sort of kind of take it from somebody so we'll see how it plays out but there's this always this debate republicans too but especially in the in the democratic party in texas because they've been in the wilderness for so long, is how do we get more people involved in the process? How do we freshen it up? How do we get younger leaders? And this goes against that if Brian is successful. And so, uh, you know, give us a feel for what the reaction is like. I mean, you know, and people, I'm curious how much Democratic activists in the area and these candidates are being frank about their response to this because I can't I can't help but think that people found this a very unpleasant surprise and are not so, especially right. happy are not especially open to the argument that for the former congressman Brian is making right uh, exactly um, and and some of the candidates and some of their supporters have pointed this out that in the early to middle 70s Brian was in his his 20s when he became a member of the Texas legislature and that they're, they are trying to do what he did, which is, which is contribute to the political discourse as a young person, as, as a, as a person on the way up and that they should be able to do that. So his argument, while you understand it, I mean, he, he says that the times are, 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 it's, there's too much at stake for an inexperienced person to, to, to leave the district. You understand what he's trying to say. But on the other hand, you know, he was in his 20s when he, he became a lawmaker and, uh, and, and when he made a, a, a difference in the legislature. So there's that. Ultimately, the voters are going to have to decide between the best candidates. I think the risk here is that with Bryant on one end, and four others fighting it out, will one of the other candidates get enough traction uh, 
to sort of match Bryant. Someone will emerge and make the runoff, and then we'll see how the race changes then. But there are people upset that in an era where Democrats are trying to, not just younger, because I don't, I don't think age should be an issue, but different voices, diverse voices, new approaches, things like that, uh, that you have someone who last held office in the 90s trying to come back and take it. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think you, you know, one doesn't have to be overly sensitive here. I mean, I, I think I think the age, you know, the age thing here is is a surrogate for all kinds of other things that are churning in the Democratic Party, both in the state right. and, and nationally. I mean, it's, you know, the the other four candidates are, as I recall, are, are reasonably ethnically diverse and they're younger, yes. as well as being and, younger. Right, exactly. You have uh, someone who came to the country from uh, uh, Colombia, the only woman in, in the race. Uh, there's there's that. There's a Tejano uh, Democrat in the race. There's, there's uh you know, all sorts of folks with different backgrounds. Um, and let me add this. So you also have a situation here in Dallas, in the Dallas area, where Eddie Bernice Johnson, the uh, longtime congressman from District 30, the only congressman, congressperson, District 30, has ever known, uh, trailblazing Democrat. Uh, she's she's retiring after, after her term ends. Well, she's in her 80s, 84, 85, 86 years old, something like that. And there's an excitement that uh, there will be new leadership coming to that seat. So you see where this is going, right? There, there's all over the country, if you look at, at, at there, there were and have been Democrats of a certain age, really, really in, in Congress for a long time are starting to retire and, and leave the scene now. Uh, and so Democrats are excited about that. But there's still a problem with a generational divide, particularly in the urban areas where Democrats have held, held power for a long time. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, overly dwell on this race. But, you know, I, I think this race also, I mean, you know, John Turner had been you know, allowing for his position, seniority, and that he was a Democrat, a successful right. and I think well-liked member. And I think his exit, you know, kind of put another reset on on this, you know, that part of the delegation in the state, I think. It did. And John Turner's exit probably came as a shock to a lot of folks because he's only been around for a couple of terms. And uh, it was expected that he would uh, kind of burrow into the house and and develop some seniority and 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 be a strong leader for sessions to come, uh, but that didn't happen. So yeah, and, and we should mention, you know, as, as I think as part of the another. I mean, this is such a fa- you know, there are so many interesting things going on in your region. Another facet of right. of Turner's position was that you know he came from a political family. Jim Turner, his father, former congressman, right, which is White, you know. Yeah, wiped out during the redistricting process of uh, 2003. But yes, he, he does. And, and still, a, you know, a very, you know, well-known and well-respected figure in democratic politics, both in the yes. region and in the state. And, right. you know, it's another facet, I think, of this kind of changing of the guard piece that's going on, but also the the difficulty that the Democratic you know Party faces structurally 
uh, in the state in managing this, both by nature of their position in the state, and as you say, the you know the 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 high amount of turnover that we're seeing in a very at a very difficult historically difficult time for Democrats in the state. And Jim, let me just quickly say why you need why you need emerging leaders, because when election cycles uh, come and go, take this election cycle. If you take Beto O'Rourke out of the the formula, right, you will find that Democrats struggle to find qualified electric candidates for for statewide office. It was a struggle. And Beto kind of did him a favor, right, in agreeing to run. He'll be able to raise some money and and mount a, a credible race. We'll see how successful he is. But but where are the other statewide Democratic Party contenders? No offense to folks who are running in, in other races. But let's face it, they need to develop a bench. They need to develop a starting lineup where when you have these opportunities present themselves, that these folks can step up and run for statewide office or run for major office. You know, you have Colin Allred in Dallas, Lizzie Fletcher in Houston, Congressman, uh, you know, uh, uh, es- Veronica Escobar in El Paso. One day they'll be ready. But you really need to develop. That's one of the biggest problems, I think, uh, uh, and reasons why Democrats haven't won a race since 1994. When, it comes, when, when the time comes to field a statewide candidate, sometimes they don't pull the trigger and get a good one. 2018, remember the nominee for governor? Little-known Dallas County Sheriff Lupe Valdez. That won't cut it in a statewide race. Right. I mean, I, I you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about that point is that, you know, that's a problem for the Democrats. You and I have been probably been talking about candidate recruitment since the first time we met a long time ago. That's right. <laughs> and part of what I think we're seeing right now is that that's not only now a problem for the Democrats, I would argue it's a problem for politics in the state in that we've gone from the weakness of the Democrats in the state being a question about, you know, when is this going to happen? What are the solutions? You know, thinking about it as a problem for the Democrats and becoming a structural feature of our politics and that, you know, certainly in 2021, there was no evidence that any of the Republicans leading the state whether you agreed with the, their agenda or not, that they were worried about the general election, that there was a a check in the political system that was affecting their agenda and their planning in any consistent way. Right. And so, you know, I think this has gone from being not just a problem for the Democrats, but a, but a kind of system-wide problem. I agree. As, as we wind down here, Gromer, what else should we be watching in Dallas? What else is going on in North Texas? Anything else you're really paying attention to and think is maybe even kind of a sleeper as, you know, the, the, the season really begins to stir? Sure. A um, couple of things. One, uh, I mentioned the, the, the District 30 race to replace Eddie Bernice Johnson. She's endorsed Jasmine Crockett. We'll see what happens with that. The, uh, other, the other big congressional race is Collin County District 3. Van Taylor is getting a challenge from former Collin County Judge Keith Self. He's not, that's a legitimate candidate there. 
and it's all about Trump and Taylor's vote for a January 6th commission that failed in the Senate. Taylor is the favorite to win, but that's one to watch. You never know what could happen when you involve Trump in politics. And then uh, legislatively, House District 70 in Collin County uh, could be a situation where that could become a Democratic seat, the first in Collin County in a very, very, very long time. Uh, and also, uh, uh, we mentioned 114, but the, uh, the Jeff uh, Kaysen seat that he holds, holds in Tarrant County, that could go to a Democrat as well. And we have a lot of other state house races out there uh, to, to pay attention to. So uh, it, it'll be interesting in the primary season. We'll let us know how things, uh, of course, shape for the general election. But I think North Texas and North Texas will play a big role uh, in, in not just local politics, but statewide politics as well. Because uh, again, if a statewide candidate in a general election can win an area like Tarrant County, for instance, uh, that gives them a chance of making a race at least really close. Beto O'Rourke did that in 2018 and Joe Biden won Tarrant County uh, in 2020. So we'll see how it all shakes out. But I'm looking forward once we get past the primary season to an exciting election year. Groomer, thanks for all that. Very helpful. Hopefully, you know, I mean, there, as you mentioned, a bunch of those house races, uh, there's a few, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. We're out of time. Uh, maybe if I can get you back right before the primary again, we'll come back and track how some of those are unfolding. So thanks a lot for being here. Man, it's long overdue. Uh, call me anytime. I love talking politics with you, as you know. And next time I'm in Austin, which will be pretty soon, we'll, we'll have a beer if, uh, a socially distanced beer or something. I am looking forward to that. Thanks, Gromer. So, right. Gromer Jeffers of the Dallas Morning News. Thanks again to Gromer. Thanks to our staff here doing a great job in the uh, Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. All right. Thanks a lot. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.